from CNU 23 in Dallas, this is the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, this is our last podcast of the day, and I wanted uh, my good friend Andrew Burleson fresh off a flight from Raleigh. You didn't fly directly from Raleigh, did you? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> How many stops did you have to make? Just just one. This no time. Uh, emergency landings this time. No emergency no? landings. It uh, was a little bumpy though. I really? was, uh, yeah, I had some flashbacks. Uh, Andrew Burleson, I actually, this is you're the you are the uh, chair of our board. Yeah, I don't think I've ever introduced you on a podcast as the chair of our board, have I? No, you've uh, you've only occupied that distinguished place since December, right? Yeah, well, we had to go by the chair first. <laughs> we, we did. <laughs> uh, so, welcome to the podcast. W- what's your impression of seeing you in the forty-five minutes you've been here? It's pretty incredible, right? Yeah this uh, this hotel is uh, quite a hotel. <laughs> uh, at least that you know. At least the one-way couplet is not a strode the way. Like I'm thinking in prior years. Uh, well, uh, I I will say you know Commerce Street here, in its defense, yeah, does have a, I think about the right you know like three to one ratio. It does. It it, it does. Yeah. It looks kind of nice as you drive down from a distance. From a distance. Now you. This were, is this is sort of one of those classic downtown phenomena. Uh, most cities downtowns look great from far away. You weren't here last night. No. And so I, I don't know if you saw. I did post this on Facebook, and. Uh, it's this office building that we walk past, mm-hmm. and it had a sign, and, and Jim pointed it out to me, and I didn't really get it at first. It says, uh, first of all, this is a totally vacant storefront. That's yeah, about right. half the block. Mm-hmm. And then it's got like eight stories of parking above it, right? Mm. So you have all the parking in the world, <laughs> vacant storefront, and it says office lease, and then it's got a phone number. And I thought, oh, you know, whatever. They pointed out the sign. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of junky. But then l- look at it says available. Read the date. Wow, August 2004. <laughs> August of 04. How is that banner still there? I, that's what I want to know. Yeah, that's what I thought was That's really impressive. Yeah. Now, yeah. okay, th- saying nothing about the uh, quality of the building there, I, I want to find out who made and hung that sign. Yeah. You know? Because they have that la- endure that long. Seriously, I mean, you got to get those guys to do all your sign work. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty incredible. Wow. <laughs> so there, there's some nice parts. That's Dallas. actually amazing because you know Dallas is one of the few places that's really, uh, you know, really still pretty hot real estate wise. So to have something sit vacant for, uh, you know, eleven years, yeah. in, in the middle of Dallas is quite an accomplishment. I, I think though, you know, par- obviously there's some parts of Dallas that are really working well, but there's some parts of Dallas that aren't. Oh, sure, aren't working so well at all. Well, I that's mean, every every city. But we went underneath the 345 last night on oh, the way yeah. over to Deep Ellum. Oh yeah, were you with uh, Patrick Kennedy? I was not at that point, okay. but I was I was channeling the vibe. Yeah, because man, that's what he wants to tear down. Right? That thing needs to come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can just see how uh, basically both sides of that thing are struggling, and then underneath it, it's just it, you know it's an elevated oh, highway, yeah, sure. so what whatever. But um, yeah, it, there's a lot of um, a ton of potential. If that thing comes down, now, you're—is it fair to say you're a Texan? Is that—is do you like when you're here? Do you call yourself a Texan? Uh, yes, I think that's fair. Okay, 
Because I, I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't want to ascribe things to you that oh, you're I know, not yeah. claiming yourself. But yeah, and it's really mean to call someone a Texan if they're not. So I yeah. understand. Yeah, no, I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say, I'll say this. So I have a little bit of an identity crisis because uh, as a kid, I lived in Southern Illinois, uh, not too far from St. Louis, and uh, lived there till high school. And then I went to high school in Austin, and I uh, went to college at Texas A&M, and then worked in Houston for five years. So, so I was four or five years in Austin, then College Station, then Houston. And uh, my parents are both originally from Texas. So when we moved to Austin, in their minds, we were moving home. Now, I felt like we were moving to an alien land that was, uh, you know, it really bothered me when people said y'all and uh, didn't yeah. like my black high tops. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that might have just been, you know, high school. But <laughs> but uh, I got over it. So now now I also say y'all. So I don't, somewhere along the lines, I, I was brainwashed. Converted over. Yeah. My, it's spreading I, though, you know. Like I, I think the English language has a has a, a missing piece there, and uh, you know half the country has figured this out, and the other half is just a matter of time. So. See, my aunt, um, you know, grew up in in Brainerd, mm-hmm. uh, lived in Minnesota till I think she was in her forties, and then moved down here. It would have been uh, fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. That that Minnesota, all oh, you know, and we're gonna go here and do that, you know. Yeah, it must have been rough. It's, it's gone, and now mm. it's y'all this and y'all that. I'm like, who? Who are you? Like, what? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Well, but there, there's a saying down here, right? There's there's the uh, you weren't born in Texas, but you got here as quick as you could, or something. Yeah, like that. people do say that. Yeah, that is a thing that people say. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> well, no, you. But you said you. I, I think a Texan is uh, is a good description because I have. A little of a most. It's too big. You really should pick a city, but it's kind of hard for me because because you had a, Austin is experience right. is more or less home in the sense that that's where my family is, and they they've been there now seventeen years, yeah. so long a long time, right? Um, you know, but I lived a few different places, roughly equally, and I, I actually was born about two miles from right here uh, in uh, Baylor Hospital here in Dallas. Really, and then my my folks moved when I was like three weeks old or six weeks old, something like that. So. Okay, I, I just barely remember it. Now, don't uh, <laughs> don't don't take offense. Don't take offense at this. Um, when 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 we first met years ago, Uh-oh. I, I had this. You 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 tell great stories, yeah. mm. and you get really passionate about the stories you're telling. Mm-hmm. And you and there was a there was a there was a part of me at at one time was like, I don't know if this guy's a storyteller, like as in a BSer, mm. or if he's like just an interesting fella. I've come to the latter conclusion. Hmm. But oh. now, was that like two hours in or? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was our long car ride across yeah, right. Idaho. Okay. Two, two days. Okay. In, got it. One of the, one of the stories that you told early on was about a, a, a relative of yours, Burleson, who oh, yeah. actually was like part of the founding of the Republic of Texas. Yeah, that's right. And, and I thought, okay, you know, you're, you're like, yeah, whatever. I looked it up, and yeah. oh no, it's it's very legit. Who was who was this guy? He was uh, like one of the head of the yeah. So the, army the main the, the main most well known guy who you're talking about is his name was Edward Burleson, and he yeah. was the general of the Volunteer Army of Texas during the Texas Revolution from Mexico. And uh, yeah, he so they had two. Actually, so if we were to write like a your family history, it'd be this dude begot someone who begot someone who begot you. Yeah, so we'd have to check with my dad for like who who all begot who. But yeah. no, I think he was technically an uncle. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that his. So if I remember right, it's his dad, Edward's dad, who sadly I don't remember James or John or something like that. They're yeah. all all good 
good English names. Okay. Moved the family from Tennessee to Texas. And then uh, there were three brothers. Now, you're, this is about to get so much better for you. You ready for it? There was, <laughs> there was, if I remember right, there was three, or it might have been. You're going to say like one tied one, to the Alamo, one. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. no. It's, it's, well, there were three of the, there's this, that generation who were really noteworthy. Uh, Edward uh, was uh, the military man, and uh, he was the first vice president of the Republic of Texas. Yeah. He was the first, sadly, this is a less uh, noteworthy distinction, but he was the first of the Texas like founding fathers to die. Oh, okay. So the Texas State Cemetery was created for him, so there would be an appropriate place to bury the, the founders of the state. Really? And his tomb is uh, just next to Sam Houston and... Uh, Tom Landry. Wow. So, Tom, yeah, yeah. Tom Landry. Yeah, exactly. You're joking me. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, in Austin. Great. It's a, it's a really cool setting. Uh, the state cemetery is really beautiful. Uh, uh, so yeah, so that's. Was Tom and, Landry buried in a suit too? I have no idea, but uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So the uh, the that other was, that was old. I mean, remember the day when like coaches didn't wear like sweatpants and oh, yeah, stuff? Yeah. They actually wore like a. Like a suit. The yeah. guy had like tailored three-piece suits. He was oh yeah, class act. Yeah, that's uh, you know what? What does the world come to? What does the world come to? <laughs> so so your like great great uncle. Yeah. Okay. So he, so that was one. The yeah. other guy was Rufus Burleson. Okay. Who founded? Uh, he was a founder of Houston's First Baptist Church, uh, which is a huge church now, yeah, still yeah. around. Okay. And uh, a uh, in Baylor University. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And he, there's a statue of Rufus, uh, on Baylor campus. So, uh, he's, was sort of a big deal. And then there was a, a another brother, uh, I think was Aaron. And I'm pretty sure that's my ancestor. And I'm also pretty sure he did nothing of note. Okay. So now he is mentioned at the San Jacinto monument because see, Edward was his older brother was the commander. Yeah. And he's listed as among the men who, uh, followed orders bravely defending the horses. Sure. Okay. So I think we can understand interpolate what he did. how, uh, <laughs> we can, we can sort of understand how big brother may have, uh, yeah. had a hand in him not being right. part of the actual combat. That's our understanding of what happened. But so yeah. when we go out on the pub crawl tonight, we'll like, you get free drinks no. everywhere we go. You won't, you won't. No, so because people that. don't know history. So, Oh, okay. But, but if you we know went what we back could a hundred years ago, you probably would have got free drinks at every I, yeah. saloon in Texas. Maybe all three of them. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But there's a uh, you know Burleson City and County and a couple other different things. Uh, yeah. And a lot of towns here have Burleson Road and this and that. So you know he was one of the guys. And uh, I, I have to say, like if you go back and you look real carefully, the historical record is you know that there was something like ten thousand or thirty thousand people total in the state at that time. Right. So a lot of it had to do with just you know participation. The numbers, sure. Uh, you know, if you show up and there's no one else there, then everything then you, is named the after general, you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so that did have something to, although, you know, to, in, in his defense. So, hey, they won. So yeah, he they must won. not have been too bad. So Edward was picked to be the leader of the volunteer army, not the regular army, because in a sort of interesting twist, uh, he was the only guy who had actual military experience. He served in the U.S. military and he was Andrew Jackson's scribe. During mm. the Battle of New Orleans, or he was serving as a scribe as a young boy during the Battle of New Orleans, yeah. in, uh, twenty something years That's before a that. Great preparation for yeah. Well, combat. he he went on to a much longer career. This is when at the very beginning of his. So he was in the U.S. Army for a long time before they before the family all relocated. Okay, and uh, so he had actual military training, and no one else really did at, at the officer level, but a lot of people did at the sort of you know soldier level, right? Sure. So they decided apparently that Sam Houston would lead the trained soldiers because pretty much he just needed to like make sure they showed up on time wherever they were supposed to be and they actually knew how to fight 
And the, the men apparently elected Edward to be the leader of the volunteer army because they needed training, and they thought he was the only one who had a clue how to train soldiers. Oh, okay, sure. So that's how they apparently made that decision. Nice. But yeah, so it was Burleson was kind of like uh, Sam Houston's right-hand right hand dude uh, for a, a great long while. So. Very cool. Yep, yeah. That's interesting. It, it, the Marone family has no such... Uh no, no such distinguishing. Didn't you guys invent cookies or something like that? <laughs> the I'm, Mountain I'm Dew kid, kid, Christmas cookies. I think uh, uh, no, something like that. no. Uh, we we <laughs> th- actually you go back. The, I'll, t- I'll tell you the one the one uh, story of my family that is is legend now. Mm-hmm. And I, I, this is it goes back a ways, so I don't even know the names. It was um, August Marone, I want to say, who came over from, and I was told he was German. I was told he was Russian. Hmm. And I actually sounds have, Roman. It, yeah, I, I, well, it was it, he had a different <laughs> like time name. Time vortex. It was uh, it was it was changed to Marone when he got here. But oh, it was I see. some other name I can't remember mm-hmm. what it was. But he something um, even harder to spell. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I actually think he was he was pr- Prussian. Ah, okay. is what I figured out. Like okay. you know, he was like uh, East German, right? You know, Prussian, and uh, he came over. It would have been the late eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, homesteaded the farm that my that I grew up on, my parents still live on. At some point, and this is going to be a really bizarre story, um, at some point he had, this is August, he had a fallout with his kid who is named Julius. <laughs> yeah, okay, and, I was right. <laughs> and, yeah, no, no. Um, and, and uh, okay, understand that at the time they had outhouses, right? Uh-huh. And I guess that August was out in the outhouse, and the outhouse blew up, <laughs> like exploded. Okay, methane problems. And the yeah. guy, the guy died like that. That was his oh, end. That's hmm. where he met his end, right? Now um, is that still on the property? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Oh, no, we actually uh, when I moved to the when we moved to the farm when I was five, um, there was an outhouse hmm. that we used, like you know, because we were a bunch of boys. Play oh, yeah. in the woods, sure. and I'm not going to go in the house. I'll just use the outhouse. Yeah, and then, of course. It's just being practical. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. At some point, my dad filled it in and all that, you know, mm-hmm. tore it down. But the, 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 the rumor about August was that did he – because I, I guess blowing up in an outhouse was not like a completely uncommon thing. Yeah. Even though – because you so have – people like back a, then were okay with it. Well, it was like you, – you, you, it wouldn't have been – I mean, I hear dying of cholera was really popular too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to pick a way to go. Yeah, and, right. But the, the – the, Boy, the, the world has changed. The, <laughs> the family legend – the family legend that, that was kind of – I got was that – he his kid actually like he was killed like the outhouse blew up but uh-huh. it was not, not an accident not an accident mm. because that solved like all the financial problems of the the younger one mm. um that kind of nefariousness seems like you know cra- it, it but it doesn't seem out of character for the maroon mm. so it looms over you <laughs> it kind of looms yeah it's I kind see. of it's kind of there in the background as like yeah you know uh someone you know, took out someone else in the in the outhouse, and you get you get kind of that's that's my family legend. So what I'm imagining now is that you know it's going to be ten years from now, and uh, Chuck's going to just go totally crazy, and we're going to all look back on this podcast <laughs> as when we should have point. known. Right, the warning signs were there, people. Right, right. Like we should yeah. have seen this coming. No, there's no uh, there's no statue or cemetery for mm. August. Mm. Um, that's rough. Yeah, you know, I mean, he I, he does have a gravestone in the Baxter Cemetery. I, I, but now you said he blew up, so is he actually buried there, or just you know some bits? 
I th- that I don't know. <laughs> I, I I haven't got that much detail. Is I'm, this cruel? I mean, we're sitting here uh, making light. No, of I about this guy. Yeah, I mean, he died over a hundred years ago. So I'm, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, I I, I I couldn't I couldn't speak intelligently on that. Sure, but I I do know that the farm then passed. Like Ju- Ju- the younger one, the kid, uh, evidently did not like inherit the farm hmm. because the farm then passed out of the family to this this other this other family uh who had it for you know 50 years 60 years 70 years to we to we bought it hmm. from them yeah so and it came full circle it did interestingly uh even after and this just tells you about like the way that even after they bought they were the vanzants even though the vanzants owned it for 60 years i'm guessing it was always the Marone homestead. Hmm. So even when we were kids and we'd go over and visit the Vanzants, it was, yeah, it's, this is the Marone homestead. So I know when they were ready to stop farming and to they actually move to retirement home, uh, they came to my, you know, my dad oh, I and see. said, so it was intentional. Do you want to buy the farm? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's cool. It, you know, it is kind of neat. It, it, it's it's kind of it, it was it was always fun to grow up there. And I mean, you were three miles from town, so you're just right on the outskirts. You had the old farm. Uh, we we spent probably the first ten years there cleaning up junk. Hmm. So you would go, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. as a farmer, you always had like junk piles everywhere. Sure. So you would, um, you know, just go and like throw everything in a big junk pile, and then, you know, when we moved to the farm, it was okay. Let's start cleaning some of this junk up, and you would. Man, the crazy stuff you'd find in these old, rusted out. I mean, it was it was stuff that didn't decompose. You know, yeah, it was right. like piles of discs. And uh, the craziest thing we found was uh, like one of those. Um, it was like a, a loom kind of thing, but I don't think it was a loom was a proper word. <laughs> it was one of those things where you 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 had a, had a foot pedal that you would move up and down, uh-huh. and you used it to sew somehow. Like I, I don't. So like a manual sewing, sewing machine or something? Yeah, kind of like that. Huh. But it was, you know, all the parts that would have been wooden had long oh, yeah, decayed sure. away. Just the metal was just was this left. metal, like, rusted out thing. Huh. But, of course, we threw it away. You know, we put it in a truck and hauled it to the dump. And if you had only and known. If you'd only known, like, the these antiquers, days, yep. it'd probably be worth thousands. Or it could be called modern art. <laughs> One of the two. Okay. I, I put this... We've been doing podcasts all day. We, I say this, we. Mm-hmm. I've been doing I just podcasts. You just got here. <laughs> uh, I've been doing podcasts since 8.30 this morning. Uh, it is now 4.38. I put this one on the agenda thinking, okay, by the end of the day, we would have created all this buzz and there'd be all these people here and we could do an Ask Strong Towns. So, you know, um, come and ask us your questions. And right now we have nobody here. Nobody here. We, we're kind of in a... We're not in a non-conspicuous place, but we're on a non-conspicuous floor, hmm, right? Yeah. Like there's nobody here on this floor. Yeah. If anyone ever came out of the elevator, they would definitely see us. They would definitely see us. Yeah. And we can hear the party downstairs. We can hear the party downstairs. But they cannot see us. Or hear us. You really. know, actually, we discussed this earlier for the people listening on the podcast who would not have heard this. I actually was looking for you downstairs and decided to, I decided that you had been at lunch or something and I had missed you. And I sat downstairs. You were actually downstairs. following the directions. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was 50 feet straight down, but <laughs> unable to perceive, you know, that you were up here and uh, so my chilled guess out down there that for quite a while. So there's probably 
close to 100 people right downstairs. Oh, definitely. Waiting to ask us I questions. I did hear chants, Chuck, Chuck, yeah, Chuck. Yeah, I'm sure that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I doubt it. Uh, but I, I, I guess we have one question sent on Twitter. Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to tackle this? This one's yeah. actually for me. Well, here's the thing. Uh, sometimes, by which I mean approximately two thirds of the time, when you and I do a podcast, it becomes story time with Chuck and yeah. we, we sort of reminisce and have a good time. So I think of these as being great for our, our insiders, but you know, uh, we also have this tendency to chop the podcast into, into half. I don't know how many times we've done this, but I think at least three times we probably like we spend the first half. Yeah. yeah re- up, we record like just... an hour just shooting the breeze and then that's like our bonus extra podcast. And then we actually talk about something real. So well, tomorrow, hey, why we're, don't we make scheduled, that pivot? tomorrow we're scheduled to do something real. Okay. Great. So I, I think. So this time we had to spread it over two, over two days. Over two, no, yeah, Friday okay. morning at 9 a.m. Friday morning, okay. Uh, we're doing, uh, you know, us of Strong Towns. Great. Talk. So, so that's where we got it. Oh, actually. about Strong Towns. No, well, no, whatever you, whatever you want to talk about. Oh, okay. So, Great. okay. Did you listen to the podcast last week? No, sorry. It's okay. You're not I will required catch up, to. But I, uh, I know you I, listen I don't a lot. always, I do listen to them a lot, but I usually am a few weeks behind. I have this thing. I have uh, like six or seven podcasts that I follow, and I listen to them when I walk the dog. And when work is really busy, I walk the dog less and get behind on podcasts. So I've, I'm, I've got, I don't know, I'm four or five back on can I, right can now. Can I veer off in a, in, a, in a direction? Yeah. Not this question. Sure. Okay. I'm an I'm a audiobook listener and a podcast oh, yeah. listener. And I'm, I'm, I listen You've to got them. me on both of these, by the way. You know that, right? Oh, really? Yeah, it's all your fault. Like, I've got you doing both of mm-hmm, these now? Yeah. Okay. So, I walk the dog much longer walks than I used to because I need to get to the end of the podcast. Dude, I... And I, I, I my, uh, my wife does, does not always appreciate it. You know, yeah. sometimes she's like, well, you know, it's time for dinner. And I'm like, well, there's 10 minutes left, so it's just going to have to wait. <laughs> uh, I take... <laughs> I, I, I've take, I take like two-hour walks at yeah. night sometimes. You know, I, I usually go after my wife. I, I go at like 10 at night. The thing is, they start a chain, right? See, once you got right. me... So, once I, st- once I realized I needed to be hearing your podcast... And then I heard some others that you recommended. I started listening to Econ Talk, yeah. and I started listening to Dan Carlin. Yeah. And see, then they recommend other people who they listen to, and it's just it's all downhill from well, there. Well, I'm going to recommend a podcast to you now. Oh, okay, and great. This one's really, well, I'm it in. This one's really addicting. Um, the 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 group at This American Life, uh-huh. which does a tremendous radio show and a really good podcast, um, they have a spinoff one called Serial, S E R I A L, and it's. 12 episodes, that's it. Like, they're done. And I don't know if they're going to come out with another version of... But it's 12 episodes all about uh, this one murder that took place. And did they convict the right guy? Did they not? Mm. And they start, like, digging into the evidence. And as you're listening, you think, oh, gosh, he didn't do it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, he did. And it... And I'm eleven. I'm I'm about to start the eleventh of twelve shows. I can't hardly stop it. It's, yeah. it's so enthralling. It's just fascinating. Serial. You got to try this one. Start at the beginning. Start at episode one. Yeah, right. And you will. I mean, the the thing is, is that you don't have to wait. Like right now, what's what's the thing that's killing you right now? Podcast uh, hardcore history. I'm waiting episode for the next six. Like when <laughs> Dan Carlin. You, I'm so angry right now at Dan Carlin, you know, and I'll love him in a week yeah. when it comes out. But the last one was December 28th. Mm-hmm. I check 
sometimes twice a day. I'm like, when is this thing <laughs> coming out? I, I've got to hear uh-huh. the six. Well, you know, you know? it must be getting close because his other podcast has been on hiatus for about a month. Right. Yeah, no, you know Usually that's the, that's the warning sign. When we miss the Common Sense podcast for two right. or three in a row, right. then it's, okay, Hardcore History is almost done. Right. Well, and it's it's got to be any day. Yeah. Right? It's got to sure. be. Because it's, he's, he's, he used to be on like a two and a half month rotation. Mm-hmm. And then it so I stretched to three months. And now well, the podcast got longer too. It, it is yeah. way, and my guess is that he's going to try to finish this series with this one. Yeah. So it, I mean, it's going to have to deal with the armistice and all, all this other stuff. And so, it, you know, we, we might be looking at a six-hour podcast. Yeah. But yeah, perfect. Oh, man, it's so good. Okay. All right. Okay. I, got, I got one more for you. All right. I got the audio book. Uh, Undaunted Courage. Yeah. Which is the Lewis and Clark oh, expedition. Oh no. I, yeah. Have you heard it? Ambrose, yeah. You, you've listened to it no, or I've you've read, read it. it? You've read it. Okay, yeah, it's also yeah. a book. Blew my mind. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Especially because I had no idea, spoiler alert for anyone who wants to find this out later, but, you know, Wikipedia. So I had no idea that Meriwether Lewis died so shortly oh, yeah. after the expedition no. and that he was, like, really not known to history for almost 100 years after right. the expedition. They, people understood that he had gone and, and taken the journey, but... Uh, they did not understand the extent to which he had made so many scientific discoveries and everything right. else. And, you know, growing up as a kid, we, like, we knew all that stuff. There's Lewis and Clark, everything all over the country, right? But that all came much later. You know, he really did not ever experience any of that himself. There's a beautiful, beautiful podcast. Um, the, the Thomas Jefferson Hour hmm. is, a, is a real weird pod it's a it's a great podcast it's a it's kind of funky there's this guy who lives in north dakota mm-hmm. his name is clay jenkinson of course he does this he does this podcast <laughs> and and he, because if you live in north dakota i mean you know <laughs> what what are you gonna do um he, he is uh oh, i he guess is, that's uh, kind of close to home for you right I mean, it is no yeah. it's a he okay the guy's a scholar uh-huh. like he's a he's a you know history scholar but he does uh thomas jefferson impersonation yeah, okay. Which is not like I talk in the voice. Of, he, he actually dresses up with the wig. And He's all really serious. Yeah. serious. And he gets hired to come. And, and and the thing is, is that it would be cheesy if the guy wasn't so really brilliant. About yeah. It. I mean, he knows. It's scholarly. It's scholarly. Yeah, He's read cool. so many books about Thomas Jefferson. He, he So he does this show. And what he does is the first segment, or, and sometimes the first two, he will do in the person of Thomas Jefferson. Hmm. So they'll talk about some current event or something in his time, and he'll answer it as if he were Thomas Jefferson, sure. right? And then after that, they follow up with um, a, a, an out-of-character segment where he'll talk about it. And it's really, really informative. It's really fascinating. He did one on Meriwether Lewis. Hmm. Yeah. And it about it, it, there were times where it about brought me to tears, and it was so good. And one of the quotes I remember from this, he asked the question, can you go, is it possible to go out so far that you can't come back? Hmm. You know, and he describes this like vivid scene and it might've been an Ambrose book too, where Meriwether Lewis was out uh, with a uh, a native American. I can't remember what tribe, but there was this concern that the native was, was very concerned that he was going to be ambushed. And because they were going to, they were rendezvous, they were meeting up with the rest of the, the, the group that was mm. out. And he was worried that, because, I mean, these, he didn't, they don't know each other, right? right? So he's worried that this is some kind of trap. And Meriwether Lewis, like, looks at him and hands him his hat and, like, puts, Meriwether Lewis puts his hat on oh. this guy's head. 
Yeah. Like so so basically we've switched Yeah, this places. was in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's one of these like um I I, I it's like he went native, you know. And the, the the kind of lingering question is you 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 take this trip out west where no, you know, Caucasian European person has gone before. You immerse yourself in this strange land, you learn all these how do you assimilate back into the culture of the East yeah. where you go to parties and you dress up and you sit at a table and you eat fine food and you, you know, is it possible to go out so far that you, you can't come back? And I, I probably lost a month of my life, like thinking about that very question. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause it's such a, it's such a deep, profound question. It you is. know, you, you have an experience like that. And then he comes back and the story is he committed suicide. Yeah. Uh, there are people who have disputed that throughout the years, but I think the most likely outcome is that he did commit suicide. Yeah, the ending of the Ambrose book uh, played out a pretty detailed account from numerous witnesses that was considered to be... Yeah. And, and then he entertained that, you know, some people said that that doesn't make sense, it couldn't be so. But the the piece of evidence he suggested is, is anecdotal, but to me I think is, is pretty convincing. He said, you know, basically... Uh, Knowing everything else you know about his relationship with William Clark and with Thomas Jefferson, both of whom have public record of how they received the news and reacted to it, they both immediately believed it to be true, that he had killed himself and that uh, it was this horrible tragedy. And neither one of them found it hard to believe. And you look at the record of the way Clark conducted himself through his military career and on the expedition and everything else, and... uh, Ambrose asked the question, like, don't you think if he had a, a shade of doubt in his mind that he would have scoured the earth to find who, the people who did this to his best friend? Right. You know, who he named his, both of his children after, you know. Right. So, you know, I think that's probably pretty convincing. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the lament about, you know, Meriwether Lewis, uh, Jefferson, I mean, he was like Jefferson's top aide. Yeah. And he was recruited, he was picked by Jefferson to lead this expedition because he, he was such a beautiful writer and such a, you know, great, uh, there was so many attributes. And I, I think history has been cheated by the fact that his life was cut so short. Oh, yeah, a- And didn't absolutely. include, you know, all of those things. No, it got me at the end of the, at the, end of the story. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that, I didn't know that part of history and I didn't look it up. Yeah. I was getting curious about sort of the expedition, but I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think when I was nearing the like, midpoint of the book, I like checked something on Wikipedia and I saw that uh, Lewis died in I think it was 1809 or something like that, and this is like a year or two after the expedition. Right, and you're like, whoa, and I was like, whoa, yeah. whoa, wait a minute, he's like right. 32, like how did right. he? So I was, but I, I decided to wait and like, you know, in this case here, but you know, like, like experience the narrative as Ambrose wrote the book, yeah. and not skip ahead. But yeah, I just, I got through the story and it just, ugh. I mean, I was for days afterwards just, you know, sitting there thinking about all the just cultural knowledge that was lost and, and you know, the historical value yeah. you know, that was just lost. Okay. What tragic. other what, what other books have you been audible? Oh, uh, I don't know. I haven't done that many. That was one of the first ones I've done okay, all the way through. I, I've been on this Will Durant kick. Mm. Now, Will Durant his, his, writes history. He wrote this series called Civilization. There's eight books. Each one is an amazing tome. Like, I, I have no clue how you would write a book this thorough. Um, the first one I read was, like, Caesar and Christ. 
<laughs> and it was basically the history of the Roman Empire from early, 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 you know, 400 BC, something like that, like earliest days through wars with Carthage and, and Hannibal and all this stuff through uh, Caesar and, and the whole empire and then the decline. And of course, Christianity emerges in that and kind of becomes a parallel conversation along with that. This was, I did this on Audible, double speed, right? It's a, oh yeah, it's a, of course. It's a 50 hour book. <laughs> wow. On Audible, right. I mean, this yeah. is a, this is a big commitment. 50 hours and you know, you can do it in 25 hours. Okay. Still, yeah. <laughs> Still, that's a big commitment of time. I was depressed when it was done. It was so good. Oh, you didn't, yeah, I didn't want to stop, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, what do you do after you've been listening to something that long? Yeah. And then there's no more. Yeah, but, that's rough. Well, the thing is, is there's seven more. There's, there's oh, a, oh, okay, because he keeps whole, going, right. I see. So, <laughs> so then... So now uh, you're working your way through them. Well, I, 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 I took a couple, I took a, like a month or six weeks off, uh, listened to some other ones, and then I went back and um, I got, I, I skipped, because Caesar and Christ was like book three. There's like one on the early Mesopotamia and all that. And then there's hmm. one on the Greeks. That's the next one I'm going to do. And then in Rome. And then uh, there's one on like the Middle Ages. And the one, the one that I skipped ahead and did, I did one on the Reformation. Hmm. Oh, my gosh. You, you know, you hear things about the Inquisition. Oh, You're like, yeah. they, you know, ah, the Inquisition, you know. Uh, oh, my gosh. You, you, you actually read about what people did. That's horrible. What they were, oh, my it's it's unfathomable. Yeah, it's there was unfathomable. a there was a uh, there was a Dan Carlin. There was a hardcore history about that. Okay, uh, I describing actually, flaying. When I finished <laughs> when I finished that book, the the one on the Reformation, uh-huh. which was so good. I mean, it was one of those again. I was depressed when it got done. I went back and listened to that hardcore history episode. Uh-huh. It was the one about about Munster. Yeah, right. And. The, it's funny because when you listen to that episode, Dan actually laments. He's like, this is the worst show I've ever done. Like I, I, yeah, at the very end, he's got this dialogue where he's yeah, like, right, I remember, yeah. I, I think this is a terrible show. I thought it was an interesting topic. I don't like how it turned out, but I'm releasing it because, you know, it's, and actually, it's my favorite hardcore history ever. Because mm. he talks about the, Dan actually gets into the Reformation. And it's like, that's a three and a half hour podcast. The first hour and a half is explaining why any of this yeah setting the context right i mean you had martin luther no what blew my mind is at the end of the podcast uh googling this town and the wikipedia image for the town is still has the cages Mm -hmm. hanging from unbelievable it's funny because this is like in modern europe you would think that like okay we have you know like (laughs) It's like these days, even I, I can't think of a great example, but I feel like to make a caricature of it, that like people are after Disney for shows they did in the 50s right. for like stereotyping, you know, women or something like that. And like, you know, we can't stand for, right. you know, we have to expunge all like hatefulness and bad things from our culture, like even if it, it whatever. And this is like people who were peeled like a potato. For, they, they had for hours. You had you had to have at least one hour of torture alive before they would allow you to die. And, and it they, was like the most horrific kind of thing imaginable. And then they hung the the bits that were left up in cages from the bell tower of their like central cathedral in the middle of town and, and left it there forever. for 500 years. Right. So you could walk as by the symbol and of the it. town. Right. right. That's where we flayed three dudes who yeah. were crazy. Yeah. That's what we do to crazy people around here. <laughs> Uh, it's sad because you're so like me. Because I finished that podcast and the first thing, thing I did was went online and like this can't be serious and then there it is there's yeah. a photo of Unbe- oh my gosh yeah 
<laughs> so that was to me that was my favorite Dan Carlin podcast. Yeah, I I had I, I liked it a lot, but I had to fast forward through some of the end a little bit because the description was a little too. The like guy was I was finding myself. Oh yeah, no, it was not. having a hard time. Okay, so right now I just started this book called The Drunkard's Walk. Hmm. It's about it's a it's a book about randomness, and they kind of hooked me at the very beginning because the guy said um, he's talking about how people uh, perceive events. And he said this one guy who won the lottery, uh, he um, had picked, like, his lucky number was 48, and that was the number that won him the thing. And they asked him, why, you know, why did you pick the number 48? He goes, oh, that's easy. Um, I did, uh, and I can't remember the exact story, but it was something like, you know, I had seven weeks in a row uh, where I picked the number seven. And so I just decided after seven weeks in a row of picking the number seven and not winning, seven times seven is 48. So I went with uh, 48, and that's how I won. And yeah, like, duh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, hey, it worked. It, it was, <laughs> the, the thing that was funny about it, it was, it's funny in the context of Strong Towns because it's this after-the-fact explanation yeah, right. for why something worked. And, you know, the beforehand is, like, completely screwed up. But if you believe it, it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> so I'm into this book, The Drunkard's Walk, and I, I, it's, it's like Nassim Taleb Light is what I it see, is. yeah. So I just thought I'd go through that one. Um, should we actually do this one question someone sent in? We're almost at one hour, so I think what we should probably do We're actually is, at 37 minutes. Oh, no. Okay, great. You have the clock, and I only have my watch. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, so then I think since we're already at 37 minutes of shooting the breeze, we should probably try and pick one more thing that we think our Strong Towns fellow member nerds would be interested in, and then wrap this podcast, and then and we can do... And not do the one... Because the one question... The reason I asked you about podcasts is because the one question actually is about last week's podcast. Oh, okay. And it's not a real question. Um, it's not like a question that's going to take a lot of deep thought. Okay, so it's not like a full podcast-worthy question. Oh, no, gosh, no. No, okay, great. So the reason I asked no you is No offense to whoever asked this question, <laughs> <laughs> as we declare it to be right. not podcast-worthy. Not podcast-worthy. But perfect for the Shoot the Breeze podcast. Perfect, absolutely. Okay, great, let's so, go. So last, last week I had... Uh, one of my council members on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw this. No, I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, yeah I, Actually, you know what? I, I am hesitant to listen to that podcast. I, I looked at the description and said something about the two of you arguing, and I'm sort of, you know, trying to manage my blood pressure lately. So I, uh, I, I, I saw that, and I considered, I didn't decide yet, but I considered that I, I might actually not listen to that one. Here's what it says. <laughs> um, we, the, converse, the conversation gets heated in the way uh, you would expect with two passionate Minnesotans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which so means we basically one of you said like, darn. Yeah, one of us said, yeah, right. oh, oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand that. Yeah, I understand that. No, I'm being serious about I, I actually, I, I probably will listen to it eventually, but I, I also have been lately kind of like monitoring my uh, I, I wouldn't, my I, personal stress stressors. I was a little bit closely. nervous about releasing this one. Hmm. Um, because I, you know, I thought people would get mad at me for not being combative with this guy. Oh. Because um, I wasn't. I yeah. mean, I asked him questions, and I, I, I think I followed up. And Is it safe him, to say he doesn't really get it? Uh, yeah, I think that would be like a colossal understatement. Yeah, yeah. okay. I mean, it so was... So that's the Minnesota nice way of describing... Right. <laughs> okay, great. Right. So... <laughs> uh, okay, perfect. Yeah, so so we the conversation, you know, we started with... Um, the, the strode through the middle of town is a five lane. Uh huh. And clearly it needs to be more lanes. Well, yeah, it doesn't even, I, I, 
I finally, I pushed the DOT. I did this thing. I, I shouldn't like claim credit for this on the air because I don't, it, I'm sure there were like many, many, many factors. And yet somehow I think you're about to. No, I'm not going to. No, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to because, okay. because I, I, I'll tell you off air what I did. Oh, okay. And you can decide if, if I was an influence sure. or not. But, um, <laughs> anyway, the DOT came out at, at one point after saying they were open to putting back five lanes on a, on a strode that has like 10,000 cars a day, mm-hmm. right? So can't even hardly justify, you know, it's two lanes. Yeah, right. We're not even using them. But they said, we'll, we'll put five back to saying we can't justify five, we can only do three. And if you want five, the city has to pay the $2 million difference, to which the city is like, there's no way the city's going to do that. Yeah, right. Um, so it, it looked like, and I had been advocating for two lanes, so it, it looked like... Now, three means one each way and a turn lane. And a center, right. like the, the horrible, stupid Suicide lane, lane in the center. Yeah. As it's so, called. So it, yeah, exactly. So it looked like I was going to... Because I thought if we go down to three lanes, now we're arguing between three and two. And I, I think that you know, I, five lanes would be a disaster. Between three and two, I can, I can, we can work three that Three you can out. live with. There's well, actually interesting things you can do with three-lane roads if you, build if you three, get it right. If you built a three and you screwed it up, you can come back and fix it at some right. point. It's not, it's not going to be apocalypse, right? You've seen the, the street I live on, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they bricked over the middle of the, So there is no more turn lane, uh, but they made it into kind of a, a boulevard. And oh. it's actually really interesting because it's, it's one lane each way. I know you were trying, to, trying to argue for that. But it's, uh, it, it's got like two spots where there's uh, like a two-car length left turn. That's allowed, okay. But in a stretch that's like two miles, probably, or at yeah. least it's at least over a mile. Okay. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's it's the the shallow curb kind of thing. It's not the the hard curb. Oh, okay. Um, and so the effect of it is in the part of th- this is in Raleigh, North Carolina, right next to the NC State campus. The street we're talking about is Hillsborough Street. The effect of it is it's this enormous pedestrian refuge, and it actually makes. All the pedestrians feel like they have permission to cross at any point in the length of the street, right? Because it's only one lane of traffic. It's only going twenty-five. You got a, a spot in the you middle. You got a big center. What was you know what, way back was a turn lane. Yeah. Actually, they narrowed it in a little because they added, I think, on-street parking on the outside in a lot of places, not everywhere, but so that so the middle thing isn't quite wide enough to be a turn lane, but it's pretty close. Sure. And it's so yeah, it's this giant island where you can just look one way and cross that one lane and then stop. And if you had to sit there for five minutes, it'd be fine because this traffic's not really moving that fast, and it's like a full you know ten feet wide brick kind of just slightly elevated thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of interesting. It makes it definitely gives people a feeling of ownership that they're allowed to cross wherever they feel like it. Right. Uh, and I don't think anyone's ever gotten run over, so I think it's probably a good thing. Well, that's the the problem in, in Brainerd is that you have the, all these businesses dying along the strip. Yeah, sure. And there's no, there's no, there's no cross traffic. Right. You, you can't walk across it. Um, so this council member is advocating strongly for five lanes. Mm. And he's, you know, I'm in with the, I, I listen to the business community. The business community wants five lanes. Five lanes is, you know, it's all about traffic. The more traffic we get, if we have to, if people have to slow down through town, they're going to avoid town and then we're going to lose out on that traffic and, and everything's going to go bad. And so we had a, we had a discussion about this and I would ask him questions and he would answer them. And it was very incoherent to me, you know, and very frustrating. So I'd, I'd try to do a follow-up and, like, reframe it and say, well, don't you think this? And what about this? And, you know, it, it, was a, it was a nice conversation in the sense that 
we were polite and respectful to each other, but we, we couldn't possibly disagree more yeah. on what should happen here. And I was nervous about releasing it because I thought people would either A, hate listening to this guy spout stuff that's just silly, just ludicrous, you sure. know? Um, or B, be upset with me because I was like too soft on the guy. I mean, I didn't sit and scream at him like it was crossfire or something, <laughs> you know, which is not my yeah. style. I just, I don't, it's not the way I roll. Uh, amazingly, I've gotten a ton of positive feedback on it. People cool. saying they really enjoyed the conversation and, you know, they think the guy's wrong, but they liked hearing it from him and like the fact that I didn't yell at him, so... But just the one question we got from uh, a guy named Will Novak on Twitter. He said, how did you refrain from yelling at Gary Sheeler on that recent episode? He seems nice but had bad ideas. Um, Yeah, how did I refrain from yelling? You know, it's one of those things where I'm at this interesting crossroads with Brainerd where it's either going to change or I'm I'm going to leave, right? It's either it's either going to evolve and change, or uh, the bonds that are keeping me there are like slowly eroding away. Yeah, and that's not a. I mean, if you're from Brainerd and you're listening to this, and I know there's a handful there, that's not like a threat. I'm not like saying you know fix it or I leave because who the hell cares where Chuck Marone lives? You know, no one from Brainerd does. I don't think that's a. It's just my own assessment of the place. Like either, I think this is. A, a, probably true of a broad swath of America, either it's going to get better or people are going to move. Yeah. Right? There's not going to be a lot of in-between. You know, either it's going to get, either it's going to get better where people want to move and live there and be part of it, uh, or people who can are going to leave and it's just going to be left with old people or people who, you know, can't leave. And I, I almost think like the debate we're having over income inequality today is going to be exacerbated by the fact that you're going to have places people want to live in and places people are stuck living in and not a lot in between. I think that's already true. I think it's true to a degree. Although and, Brainerd yeah, it's going to get worse. Brainerd's not a place that is like horrible to live in, but it's not trending in the right sure. direction. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. No, I totally see that. No, I mean, I think this is uh, that issue of people are just going to leave and they're going to move someplace better. Uh, I think it's playing out every day. You you look at, uh, you know, not that not that Raleigh is uh, the the best city in the entire world, but it's a pretty nice place and uh, it's growing like crazy. Yeah. But you look at uh, and and you know in the in the defense of uh, Raleigh, I I, uh, I rarely can say nice things about city planners, but I think the city planners in Raleigh are mostly not retarded. Yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> they've, yeah. they've been doing some work there. I think they're spending too much money. I, I think they could get a lot more bang for their buck, but I, I like what they're doing. So I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty willing to just kind of not raise a stink about it. Right. So, uh, well, you know, and, and I feel and like you're seeing huge dividends that the area is, is filling in with lots and lots and lots of people. But you know, it comes at a price, which is that they are only able to grow and change so fast, uh, even as even as much as they're trying to embrace this increase in population, it's still unfolding slower than the demand. The, su- the supply is increasing slower than de- the demand. So prices are rising steadily, you know. Right. And it's a fairly affordable place today, 
but it may not be in 10 more years or 20 more years, and that's happening in most cities. They're going one of two directions. Either they're becoming uh, rapidly unaffordable and unattainable because they're very desirable, uh, or they're just people are leaving in droves and they're they're very stuck, you know, or right. e- either st- either sort of stuck for now, but we know what's coming later, or they're already in free fall. Right. You know, that's that's already I think pretty pretty much the normal condition in America that it's one of the two. When you when you look at a place like like Raleigh, what do you think? Because you you've been to Brainerd, you've been to Raleigh, mm-hmm. yeah, you you. you you're maybe not intimate with everything that's going on in Brainerd, but I think you know through me some of the frustrations and challenges. Obviously, two different cities in scale as well, but what culturally is it about a place like Raleigh that allows it to change and adapt, where a place like Brainerd is so much harder? I don't know if I can make an educated answer, but I can make a a guess. Well, make an uneducated guess. So I would say my guess is probably a lot to do with uh, uh, gosh. So, I would guess that it has to do with just churn, a population churn. Uh, Raleigh is a big time university city. Um, North Carolina State is right in the middle of town, but there's, I think, 13 other universities that are either in the city limits or nearby, including Duke and, uh, University of North Carolina are within about 40 minutes. Uh, Duke is closer. Uh, the, um, so it's just a very high education community, but also because of the nature of those kind of jobs and the uh, and the students, obviously, there's just enormous turnover in the population. A lot of people live in Raleigh, but not a lot of people live in Raleigh their whole life. Um, sure. And I think the people who don't have uh, a set-in-their-ways mentality, uh, who come in and are new, they, they see a place pretty realistically. I think people who grew up somewhere do not. And so I think the more the percentage of your town is that grew up there and, and saw as, has seen it as their sort of home and it's, it's uh, seen through that lens, um, you know, there's you, a special... You automatically put limits and buffers and yeah, everything else on There's it, a right. special relationship you have with the place that you feel like is your home, that's where you've always lived. But, I mean, it's also natural that especially as we get older, you know, changes can be bad. And uh, I think Ian uh, Rasmussen are, is also a board member, a uh, good friend of both of ours. I think he just d- nailed this question, and it applies to so many things when he talked about the party analogy. Right. That people are just accustomed to change bad. Things get worse. They don't get better. We get more traffic, right. uglier buildings. You know, like just when new development happens, it's usually for the worse. Right. Uh, and uh, it didn't used to be that way, but it is now. And the people who have that gut reaction, like, I don't want any change because I know things are just going to get worse. It's going to get more expensive. There's going to be more traffic. You know, it's going to get uglier. They're just going to build cheapo, you know, stuff that's going to wear down in 10 years and it's going to be ugly and eyesore. They're going to move the Walmart down the road a few miles. Like, they're right. Like, everyone who has that feeling is right. It's a rational belief. It's a perfectly rational belief. And so the problem with that is what we see all the time is that people have, uh, I think, incorrect. uh, They have have a rational reaction, but their responses that they have or that they they choose to act on are, I think, based on a false understanding of the problem. So, like, I would give as an example of this – a city that I, I only know about from afar, but as uh, someone in the tech industry, I, I deal with people in San Francisco all the time. And uh, San Francisco is a wonderful city, but uh, it's 
cost of living is just unbelievably out of whack. And you look at it, uh, it's mostly small houses, bungalows, the Victorian townhomes, which are beautiful built houses, you know, beautiful houses. But, uh, and this is not just San Francisco, this is the whole Bay Area. Uh, especially actually as you go south from San Francisco down towards Palo Alto and on to San Jose, you know, and these little bungalows are millions and millions of dollars because they shouldn't be little bungalows. There's too many people on not enough dirt. Right. These should be Brooklyn, four-story walk-up, brownstone buildings with five or ten times the density level that they have. But, you know, they reached a point in time where they saw... They like they made it to the 50s and 60s and saw everything get worse. Every time we built anything new, it was worse. So they locked it all down. Right. We're just gonna freeze it. So forget it. Nothing. New. Nothing's gonna this change. Is gonna make it all bad. We're gonna keep these yeah. bungalows forever, and we're never gonna allow any new ugly buildings. We're never gonna allow any of this, you know, junk to ruin our city. Which is a very rational response, but it doesn't change the market forces that are drawing all these people in. Right. And it just makes for a desperate situation where if you already live there, that's great. But if you move there for a job, I mean, you're screwed. Right. You just completely, you're in a hopeless situation because the people there have created an environment that punishes you for moving there. Well, and ultimately it's going to punish San Francisco too. Well, you know, it is already punishing San Francisco, I think, because you have people who, they live there, but their kids could never stay. Right. You know? Right. Uh, Not until, I mean, they they need to have the parents literally need to die and pass on the house because that's the only way they're going to be able to afford to stay in in, in the area. So, you know, and there's, 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 uh, like every place, it's more complex than just that. There are, I'm sure, pockets that are still, you know, more attainable. But it's funny because, you know, for people in the rest of the world, I was talking to a guy, uh, so this is, this is a secondhand story, but I was talking to a, a guy in software uh, who I know, he, he relayed a story to me of how one of his coworkers really wants them to open up a Los Angeles office because he's from Southern California, and he says, I wish we would open an L.A. office so we could move down there because it's so cheap. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, for all the rest of America, uh, this is a guy in San Francisco talking about how L.A. is so cheap. And, you know, all the rest of us would be scared off by Southern California prices, right? Yeah, so, no kidding. So, but, you know, it's funny because even New York has this same problem. That, it's true. Uh, that, you know, Manhattan, as much as Manhattan is, you know, towers, it should be even more. Like, they have also greatly right. limited density. and It's true. They don't like to, you know, we were walking around with Ian and... I, I, it's astonishing to me because he's pointing out like, look, here's our transit stop and check that out over there, guys. Parking garage. Look at it over there. Parking garage. Look at it over there. Parking garage. Yeah, right. He's like, these are all brand new buildings and they require them to put in all this parking, even though it's right next to this like convergence of two subway lines. And on roads you couldn't hope to drive on. I mean, yeah, exactly. that are just gridlocked all the time. It's because they have an obsession with parking. Yeah. Just like every just place like else. everywhere else. Yeah. And, and, and you don't think that is the case in a place like New York. Like, how no, no. You look from the outside, and it's like, oh, this is the this is the one place in America where you like you don't need a car. Truly, don't need a car. Right. It's not a major in- hindrance to your life if right. you live there. And a lot of people actually don't have cars to get around all kinds of other ways. Right. Uh, surely those people get surely it. Surely they are, that, won't that, do something like, as stupid you know, as what we've done. But no, they have. But they have both parking minimums and maximums. Right. So they've got you on both ends. Right. 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 So no, there's this issue, is, you know, we listen to a lot, we, we listen to a lot of economists and, uh, it's, this issue is generally called the knowledge problem that, uh, the city planner, no matter how smart they are, 
is generally just not going to be able to write rules that are perfect for all situations. And uh, unfortunately, the response over the last 50, 60 years of planning has been to every time they come up with a situation where the rules don't fit, to put more rules in to fit the new situation. And now the rule books, you know, which in 1950 were, you know, five or ten pages of fairly easy to understand, really broad brush strokes, you know, uh, are now 500 pages of stuff that you need a master's degree to even, like, read, let alone... And that doesn't mean you can understand it. It just means you know the vocabulary, right, you know? Right, right. So you need a local interpreter who can explain to you how the, the, you know, how did that particular rule come into town so that you understand the intent by which the rule's going to be interpreted if you go ask for a variance. Well, you know, uh, in San Francisco, they, the uh, to get a construction permit in San Francisco... Uh, my understanding is that it's about 10 years is the average uh, time it takes. 10 years. So you think about there's another side of the knowledge problem, right? If someone's going to build a project, they're I'm, betting on I'm what's 22. the market going to be. I'm right out of school. I'm, a, I'm excited. I'm an entrepreneurial person. I want to invest in this community and yeah. be here for the long haul. So by the time I'm 32, I can actually do something. Yeah, I yeah. better start now so that right. by the time I'm 32, my first project will be built. Right. Yeah. No, right. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. So people there, they, they won't do anything until it's a sure thing. So you have to wait until it's like, okay, you know, the lines for people trying to find a place to live are, you know, uh, oh, yeah. wrapping around the, the block, whatever. Like, we've got uh, so much demand at this point, we couldn't possibly go wrong, you know, so we'll, fi- we'll finally start the process. Right. But, you know, all of those are situations that we created by having an understandable reaction to a, a problem. Which the problem is we were building garbage. Building crap. You know, right. the problem is we were destroying our cities with this, uh, you know, kind of postmodern sprawl pattern uh, that made places awful to live in and didn't hold value and didn't didn't last and went out of style real quickly and. Uh, you know, and, and then there's trends. So you have your 60s version of this, your 70s version of it, your 80s. And each one of those was sort of seen as being a little better at the time. Uh, but they just basically are more elaborate and expensive versions of the same thing, which is the uh, rolling, you described as rolling blight, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the actual problem. And we're not doing anything to address that. And that's why, you know, all these other solutions that we've layered on top of the problem are, are not actually making things better. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. And we are out of time now. So let me ask you this and we'll stop. <laughs> uh, we'll okay. try. Uh, this Friday night, uh, we're hosting a debate. And there's two propositions being debated. And, and the one, uh, I've got to recruit two people to argue against this. Uh-oh. The proposition is auto-based new urbanism was a mistake. And I have a number of people who have lined up saying, yeah, I totally agree. Auto-based new urbanism was a mistake. And I'm trying to find two people to argue the other side. That it was not a mistake. It was not a mistake. No, I can argue that side. I, I, you know, I, I, if I were to argue that side, I would say, well, look at when new urbanism started, the context it started in, and it was essentially a bridge to something else. But to say it was a mistake, like it never should have happened, no, it created this bridge and all this lost knowledge recouped and, and all this stuff. But I can't find anyone to argue that point here. Oh, boy. <laughs> Would you, I mean, I'll, I'll think about it. <laughs> could, could I recruit you to be on the other side of that? Well, like, okay, so I have mixed feelings about it. But um, Do you think auto-based new urbanism was a mistake? I think, uh, I think urbanism uh, is... 
just urbanism. I think auto urbanism and walking urbanism are just a question of density level, really. Um, I do think that it's not realistic to go straight from, you know, the, the, the Jetsons, Towers in the Park, like that's our vision of the future, to sort of bring about cultural change to say, no, we're going to go back to pre-car. Uh, I don't think that's realistic. And also, I think it, it's, uh, it, it doesn't actually fit rural contexts where uh, the car is actually a really important link between the areas that are big enough to have more choices available, right? Sure. So, like, cars actually, I think, do have a place in the world. It's just that place is greatly overblown. So I don't, I don't think it's a mistake per se. Uh, but I, I do think, though, that there's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, seaside is auto new urbanism. But uh, I think done right. Well, of course, because it's seaside, so it's like the model, right? Right. But I think uh, it's an actual small town in the middle of nowhere, you know? What, what about some of these? Because, you know, a lot of the new urban subdivisions that you're brought to go see, like here's a new urban subdivision, a lot of them are out on the, their suburbs. Yeah, well, and, so, and so that's you, what I was going to say. You drive that, to it. And the mistake to me is, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this one, but Ion, I think, or yeah, La- Laon. Yeah. I've never known because of the font they chose if it was right. an L or an I, but this is South Carolina <laughs> I, I near think Charleston. It's like, that's the pretentiousness of it. You're not supposed yeah, to. Yeah, right. So w- the Laon, whatever it's called <laughs> in, in South Carolina, I mean, just mortifyingly bad. Right. I, beautiful houses, horrifically bad. Like, it's like everyone who lives there has got like three trucks, giant trucks parked in front of these beautiful, you know, kind of cottage homes yeah, yeah. with like the truck nuts on them. Right. right? right. And so it's like, you know they don't get it. That they they just think they live in a place that has front porches and like that's it. There's no difference, right? And in Seaside, the same thing is true in a different way, which is that Seaside itself. They, here's where they screwed up, right? Here's where Seaside is wrong. I'd love to get Duani on here, and I, I would I would say this to his face. Yeah. Like they they closed all the streets. I see. I think except one. They closed the streets. They didn't establish a pattern that was meant to grow, and like. How freaking stupid was that? Like, they, duh, this is going to be a hit and it's going to draw people in. Or at least you should expect, like, when you're designing a new town in the middle of nowhere, you should surely hope it's going to be a success, right? Like, where's the grid, Dwani? Right. Where is it? Like, you know, we, we, it's so all the stuff that's around Seaside doesn't really continue the pattern, but cut Seaside off as this little neat little island right. and then surrounded by sprawl because it attracted all that growth, right? Right, right. And so, I mean, that was so Walt Disney's me, argument uh, uh, when he built Disneyland. You know, he said, I'm going to build this really nice place and it will inspire everybody around me to build really nice as well. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? He built this place and then everything around him is like the lowest, oh yeah, cr- the, the worst basis junk you can find anywhere. But it's just, I think you could say in, in uh, defense of the team that built Seaside at the beginning, they didn't have any control over the land around them. There's really not much they could do to determine what was going to show up. There's, they did like all developers do these days. They, they built a moat. By you know closing off all the streets right. in in order to defend their project from the crap they knew was going to be built around it. So I, I, I understand that they're just being realistic, but in terms of something being the model, the problem with all these auto urban and or auto new urban places is that they are not truly urbanistic or urban at all. If they aren't built to grow, they're built to be static and unchanging. So that's the way in which they're a terrible mistake. Yeah. But so I can't get you to auto argue. urbanism in general. I mean. I, I think it would be well. You made me do this uh, a couple of years ago, arguing about what, transit, transit being a bad transit. thing or yeah, something well, like that. Yeah, well, you you won that debate. I too. did, but I would have you to clean win the floor. I would have to do this one the same way, which is to say that it's a it's a semantic issue, right? The issue of designing new urbanism that supports 
a, a role for the automobile is yeah. definitely not a mistake. Yeah. It's the designing new urbanism as just an architectural style on top of the, the dendritic pattern of yeah. closed off development and cul-de-sacs. Yeah. That is a terrible mistake because that completely destroyed our, you know, the ability to have a distinctive brand. You know, we're building towns that are meant to grow and change over time. No, we're just building subdivisions that are a different style than other people's subdivisions. You still get there on the highway. You still get in one grand entrance. You still have, you know, the little, two little drugstores at the front that are your town center. Right. You right. know, like it's the same. It's the same. Yeah. So that's the mistake. What are you, what are you, what are you doing here at CNU? Just came to hang out with you guys. Is that what, I mean, cause I, I, I look and I, you know, I, well, here's the here's the schedule for the next two days. Yeah, I am planning to go to two sessions. Yeah, uh, I might. I'm. I, I'll tell you what. If you're listening from the AICP or my PE <laughs> licensing, I'm probably gonna go to like 15 sessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, me too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I'm. But I'm. You know, I'm here uh, doing this podcasting stuff and talking to people and hanging out. Let, let me ask you, and we're, you know, an hour and change in, so I'm guessing like all the lightweights who are going to be offended by this question have, have gone away. Oh, sure. Well, they didn't listen in the, in the first place. No, because they're too schlubs. The, uh, the, uh, top, the topic of this podcast is going to be Chuck and Andrew <laughs> whatever, hanging out. Whatever, yeah. yeah. The whatever show. <laughs> so ha, where, where are we at with the new urbanism? You, you and I both came here kind of inspired by what they were doing. Mm-hmm. You and I both came here. Uh, looking for answers. I think we largely found answers and knowledge and intelligence and it's certainly amazing people doing great things. But I, I, I'm not coming here for that anymore. Yeah. I'm coming here because I, 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 there's a lot of people here whose stories I want to tell. That's what I've been doing podcasting. I want to hang out with you and I want to talk strategy with, with you and Jim and Joe Minicozzi and and other people. But it's not about the, what's going on with CNU? Yeah, does that make you? Does that make you kind of? It kind of makes me a little sad in a way. Um, a little. I, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's sad really. I think uh, it maybe is a little bittersweet. But I, I, I think okay. Uh, on the drive home from, I, I drove from where I was living at the time in Houston to CNU eighteen or something in Atlanta. I think that was eighteen. Um, doesn't matter. The point yeah. is. It, and then you, and when you got there, you had to drive to everything else. When you, <laughs> that, uh, was, that was one of the. Well, there's a, there's more of a story of what happened with me in Atlanta, but that's not for today. So, uh, so yeah, so I I was at seeing you in. Were you were you in Atlanta? I was in okay. Atlanta. Okay, yeah, I, so, I hid. Okay, um, great. That was one of my. That was before I knew anybody. Right. I was still like hiding from everybody. Yeah, I mostly didn't know very many. I, I knew very few people at that one also. But anyway, I was I was. Driving home, and uh, my actually Pam came with me. Uh, my wife drove a lot of the trip, and we saw some family in the area uh, at the time. So she she sort of stayed in the area and hung out with family while I was at the conference. But um, so we were driving back, and I when while she was driving, uh, which you've been on a road trip with me, so you know that was ninety five percent of the time. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Actually, I probably drove half of that trip. But when Chuck's around, Chuck does all the driving. So uh, anyway, while she was driving, I <laughs> sat and typed up a whole like big fiery reaction to like, okay, this is my first Congress that I deeply attended. I presented at that one. I got much more connected to people than I had been in the past. 
Um, and I came out of it like, I got this. Like, I yeah, figured yeah. it out. Let's do it. Let's here's go. what, like, here's where this thing nailed it. And like, here's where the movement needs to go next. And, uh, what I wrote at the time, I still think is true today and it is no closer to happening and is the same magnitude of mistake as it was then. In my opinion, of course, was, well, it was my idea. So of course I think it's brilliant, but I wrote then that we needed to have two events a year. That one should be the expo, and that's this. That's what we do right now. It should be the expo of the new urbanism, uh, exposition if we want to be, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that it should be for new people. Like a showcase. It's a showcase. Yeah, the yeah. point is, showcase, do the circuit, everybody gets to stare at Dwani and be amazed and right. hear him talk for the first time. And they've never heard it before, so it's amazing, right. mind-blowing. guy's brilliant, and it's wonderful to hear his thoughts on things, yep. especially the first four or five times, you know. Uh, I, I tell you what, I thought about taking, like, not doing the podcast during the time when he was doing the 101 today. Oh, yeah. Just because I wanted to go hear it again. And no, I don't know yeah, how many, so great. I don't know how many times I've heard it and, and listened to it on YouTube and everything else. And I just, I, I want it again, right? And I think the expo is, is aimed at continuing education, get all the city planners, get all the developers, get all the real estate people. Like, well, no, they need to grow past the apes. Yeah, past uh, the apes first. Right. But like, but it should be the for the outside world event. It's an important thing. It's valuable. And actually, they're doing a decent job of it. Yeah. At this event. Yeah. Uh, and it needs to be for that purpose. And then there needs to be a Congress, which needs to be a lot more like the next gen summits we, uh, uh, we were part of a few years ago. Right. Where it's a much smaller group of people and it's not any showcase. There's no edu- no one oh ones. Right. And let's dive in and try and tackle some let's actual get problems. Yeah. And I think actually what's sad is that minor this is before my time, but my understanding is the first five or six congresses were very much that way. It was people who already knew each other, knew each other's work, and they came and pulled out rolls of paper and were like, I'm dealing with this problem with trying to get building entrances and, you know, uh, I, building codes, and I got to figure out a way to build this urban stuff, but I'm not going to get allowed to, and how do I fight this in court? Like, all these things that they were, you know, trying to conquer at the very beginning, and and you know, on the one hand, that's what these, the, the Congress does now is teach everyone what did they, those guys learn in sort of the first generation of stuff. But there's a second generation of problems, which are bigger and harder. And I feel like we've just stopped. Like the we're, CNU we're, we're has just... We're not attacking those with the same no, robustness. It, it's just basically said, like, well, we got the first right. generation of problems nailed. And like, here are the answers to those. And right. here's our showcase of the answers. Well, and you, you've got now, you know, the open innovation track you've got the lean urbanism track you've got you've got people who are trying to do that but i agree like the central core yeah, of the organization the of the is event. not no we're, we're not and it's not the focus of the organization because the focus of the organization is the expo right. which we call the congress right but it's really the, it's expo. the expo right and I, I feel like that that is in the when i started coming and really for me because i was at the first one I went to was Denver, which was uh, like number eight oh, or yeah. something like that. Or no, not no, no, eight, it was later. It was like eighteen. So I missed. I missed. Denver was after Atlanta. No, no, Den- no, Den- right before. Denver was right before Atlanta. Okay, yeah, yep. So I, I was at Denver, then Atlanta, then you know, uh, Madison. I think was after that. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, I've been around since Denver. Um, to me, there was a even probably by that point that that friction was maybe gone. It was it was. 
I saw it because it was more than what you get at like a boring APA conference. Oh yeah, or it's great. I mean, there, there's if there's, you're new, this is the best event you'll ever oh, go to. Yeah, I mean, there's people arguing in the halls, and you you get like this real like vibrant thing. But I've even seen it since I started diminish and become more of an expo than an actual. Come on, let's let's well, let, let's deal yeah. with the deep problems. There's two people, or there's two different kinds of people who come here. There's the new people for whom this is amazing, and I think it's still amazing. And actually, I think from what I've seen of the program and everything, I think the Dallas team uh, did a good oh, job yeah. Yeah. really taking it up a notch this year. I hope that this will be looked back on as a really successful Congress. But but the other crowd is the old-timers, and the old-timers are here to hang out with each other. They're not here to attend the sessions because we know the stuff. Right. Like, none of, uh, when you've been around five, ten years in this – no, not ten. When you've been here three to five years in the CNU circle regularly, you get it. At this first-generation level, we, all of us get it. Right. And the stuff that we're trying to tackle now I think is just harder. It's more the cultural stuff. See, th- this is where – okay – I feel like, and this gets, gets to the next gen summits that we had too. Um, I feel like at the next gen summits, I was coming there with more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. And I was finding people who were helping me discover the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Because they were there with the same thing. And there have been times here at the CNU where it's the same. Like I come with all kinds of well, questions. Because the same people are here. Right. And I am discerning from people the, the answers. I have questions now, but they're like, you and me are going to go talk operations after this with, with Jim. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, what are we, what are we going to do? You know, um, it's, it's not the, I mean, I have deep questions. Like what happens to our cities when they have to contract by 70%? Like what, yeah. what, what goes on then? And I don't feel that level of question being asked and answered here. Right no, now. I think the CNU got stuck on... This, the first generation problem was how do you build human scale stuff from scratch? Yeah. Because we almost lost that entire body of knowledge. Right. And so how do we discover, when we look around and we see beautiful old buildings, how did they do it? What were they doing? Yeah, what was yeah. the architecture? And how can we build it again? And like the CNU has done a great job of answering that question. Here's how they did it. Here's how to do it again. When it comes to building stuff new from scratch, like really? we got that covered. Right. When it comes to how do we fix struggling existing places today? How, how do you take I don't think we have I think that's where the movement just stalled out. Yeah. And there's no great answers. Cuz you you look at like what's going on in Baltimore right now. Yeah. And there's so many dimensions to that. I thought several times during this conversation about bringing that up oh, and decided this- not to yet because uh there's this is going to be a two-hour podcast. It now. could be right. There's so many dimensions <laughs> to that, but I, I think that they, a lot of them, and, 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 and I'm, you know, obviously I'm city. I have a certain view of the world, the prism that I look through things. But I think that if if we're not downstairs here talking about what's our input in a place like Ferguson or our input in a place like Baltimore right now, and how does what we're doing intersect with this larger question of how people live, how they interrelate, how local economies work, how people are provided opportunity, not opportunity, how, you know, how you build places that are safe and secure. Well, and the thing is for, for the CNU, that's so hard about Baltimore. Baltimore is a beautiful beautiful city and it's got all the right stuff from an architectural point of view. It's, but it's 
very in some not all the city, but in big chunks of the city, very poor and very okay. worn out and and worn down. Now, all of us can look at that urbanistically, look at the buildings and say like it would not take much Nailed for this it. to be right. Okay, the way Charleston, you know, yeah, Charleston yeah. is about, you know, 70% now. Charleston had some some rough years too. But the city of Charleston is now from my firsthand experience being there, I would say probably about 70-80% uh like prime condition. You yeah. know, the houses are owned by somebody who's got money, is taking care of them. It's becoming an expensive place because it's so nice. Right. right? But it's like a tourist destination, major tourist destination. Baltimore could totally be another Charleston in terms of being a place that people rave about. You have to go there. It's amazing. Cruise ships stop in the inner harbor and let you out and you walk all around. And it's like, you know, right. going to a European city. You know, right. it's, a, it's got all that potential. But they have enormous social issues, and I don't think we have answers for it. I don't think. Well, this was Ian Rasmussen's argument like five years ago to me. Mm-hmm. He, he was saying, and it was a critique of the new urbanism. He said, uh, everybody, you're, you're, we're obsessed with the building form and getting the building form right. Yeah. As if that solves like every problem. Look at Baltimore. And he used Baltimore as an example. Yeah. He said, they, they nailed it. The building form is perfect. They're all boarded up. Right. The, the, you know, yeah, exactly, not, exactly, not in, exactly. The, it's social. It's, it's, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, but it's not working. Why? Until we can answer that question, we're really not up to the task. And I think, by the way, you look at, obviously we weren't there and have to have all of our reactions with a big grain of salt. Right. But you look at uh, the events that transpired there and uh, – you see the the sort of the beginning of this conflagration that began a few days ago, and uh, I see the sort of pictures from early in the day, and it's Twitter and Facebook. We're all going to meet up at the mall, and we're going to riot our way downtown. Okay, right. a couple people saying that. A lot of people just angry and are getting together at the mall to protest or just express their anger, and some people saying we're going to riot, things like that. Right? Okay, that's that's dangerous, but. They're mad at the police. Right. What's the very first thing they did? They sent the police dressed like they're the army in riot gear to go line up and form a perimeter. Like, how is that not pouring gas on the fire? Yeah, yeah, totally. If you, if, if, if I was, you know, magically, magic genie, I had the power to go see that situation and do something different. Right. I would beg all the, maybe, maybe the firemen, maybe all the church, actually, and one of the pastors, one of the pastors put out a call. So I need all my men to meet up at the church because we're going to go be security. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. The I mean, brilliance. that guy's amazing. That right. guy should be right. given a lot more authority, right? Right. That, because he's clearly understanding the police cannot possibly help when the issue is the police. Right, right. No, they can only... And, and then we... We're, you, okay, well, now we're going to call in the National Guard. Yeah, that'll make it all better. This, this is their... And, and I guess this is what I'm, I'm getting at with where I think... Well, okay, on, on Friday... We've got this session. I don't know if you saw the session I'm in on Friday. No. It's um, conservatives and the new urbanism. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Do you see who's in that session? No. Okay. It's one person from the American Conservative Magazine. Okay. Another one from the American Conservative Magazine is moderating the session. Okay. Me and Dwani. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And, and and I I although actually you know Dwani is funny because oh he's 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 perfect he's yeah. perfect for this. He's, 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 I don't think either. 
he he's neither really liberal or conservative. Well, he, he has some some social liberal leanings in certain things, I think maybe. But uh, I tell you what, it he's was, just so all over the map. When I first came here and was hiding out, uh-huh. like way back in Denver, uh, one of my misgivings was that this is just a bunch of you know urbanism. It's just a bunch of like left yeah. lefty. Yeah, it's know. really not though. Well, I got here and I heard Duani talk, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this guy's not a lefty. Yeah, he's like a market. Uh, driven. Yeah, totally. He's talking about getting rid of the bureaucracy that's stopping good development. And I'm, I'm no, like, it's I'm funny. I don't totally know, quite know the right way to label. I don't think there is a great label that fits. No. But if there was, it would almost be like, you know, uh, actually, I don't even know if that's right. It's just, it's almost like old school, like, you know, different kind of politics. Right. If you, if you go way back to sort of more like, uh, I don't know, 1950s Democrat. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like much more conservative, like hugely conservative by today's standards. Right. But, you know, uh, still would identify with many of the sort of Democrat agenda things. Like that, that's probably the most common political persuasion you run into here. Um, but it's really hard to pin because people are just all over the map. You right. Know? They- Here's the thing though, and why I brought up that session on Friday. I, I don't, I, I really was excited about doing that session. Because I think it's going to cross some some boundaries that we need to talk about here. Yeah. We need to get beyond architecture and beyond urban form and yeah. beyond T zones and coding and and I think we have to have. I'll tell you what, someone and I I won't mention who they are, but someone who <laughs> uh, is uh, is a prominent part of this organization, uh, maybe even as a like top position in the organization. Okay. Um, Indicated to me that uh, well, I was going to be in this other session, and I wound up I can't do it because I won't be here. I'm, uh, but uh, when I was picked to be in this session, uh, there was objections that this person received because why would we want someone as con- you know conservative uh, or actually called me Republican, which I, I think is a mislabel. But why why would we want a Republican to give a platform you know in a place like this? And it's interesting wow. because yeah, that is that is an ignorant statement. Yeah. A, B, it's ridiculous because no, you know, I, I don't know who gave her this comment, but it was not a, um, it, it's certainly not a feeling, the sense that I've ever gotten here. Yeah. But I, I do think that this is the, this is the area we need to go. We need to start having talks, not about economics in terms of like Joe Minicosi and I's stuff. Like here's what a, here's what a productive place is. We have those, what kind of economic system should we have? Yeah. Right. Like we need to talk about uh, how do we actually create jobs? How do we actually make people's lives better? Yeah. And 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 I I feel like that's the next step here, and we're not wow. having it like we should. So Russ Roberts, uh, who we yeah, both yeah. enjoy listening to, yeah. uh, often talks about luggage being the best solution to certain kinds of problems, <laughs> um, and uh, I think that's. That's probably true. It's probably been true. Um, but I think we're very concerned that it may not be able to be true anymore. Like there may, it, like there's a lot of, there's, there's reasons why, you know, people who are born and raised in Africa uh, who deal with a lot of problems there or in parts of the, the whole rest of the world, parts of South America, parts of Asia, parts of the United States, uh, it's really hard to leave where you're from. Right. It's really hard. And a lot of people don't, I think, even really know that they could or that there's an option, you know? And so you can't fix that with luggage. Right. Although, if I, we, 
you know, care deeply about the future of the country, I think we're going to have to have a better answer than that. Because, well, Ian, Ian, who we love, you know, has talked about everyone's just going to move to New York. Yeah, he, he, it's actually, not happening, Ian. It's funny because <laughs> Ian is so brilliant, and I love Ian. But sometimes he says things are just like ridiculously stupid, like that that are kind of like that. Yeah, like well, why doesn't everybody just have a you know a, a subway stop next to a you know what? Like, yeah. like, like the place he lives is anything like normal. You know, it's it's well, like see, he knows one it's not, tenth of one percent of the country. He knows it's not normal, but he doesn't. Uh, what Ian can't seem to wrap his mind around is why anyone wouldn't just move to New York. Right. Like if right. you're tired of just move to Manhattan. Just duh. move to Manhattan. Right. It's the solution to everything. And it's well, but like you already can't afford it because so many people are doing that. Right. right? Like the problems you have in New York are largely an issue of lots more people wanting to be there than actually can be there. But I think if you're local and you like the city, it's really hard to relate to. There's a lot of people who hate New York, just right. hate it. Right. And maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they just don't know any better. Um, but you know, I grew up. My you know, my parents are my parents are Texans. You know, right? They're like, oh, New York, California. Ugh. You know, they think that's just those are just bad places, right? right? So, uh, although I, I think they probably play it up a little bit more than they. They truly believe that, but that's a cultural thing. There's parts of the country and, and whole groups of people who identify, you know, those places as just being really hostile territory to them and they would right. never go. So if you're in the middle of Kansas and your town is dying, what do you believe your options are? Here's the, and we should probably end. <laughs> Here's the, I'll ask you a question and say we should end and then we'll talk another 20 minutes. Perfect. Here's the, um, the, the question that I feel like should be mobilizing this organization right now is, is maybe one that nobody's prepared to ask or no one really believes. Maybe that's my problem. I, I, I firmly believe that 70% of the land area we have developed in this country will be vacated or abandoned or salvaged or just go away yeah. in the next, you know, in the next generation. We're going to release this data next week. I, I'm going to give you some of this preview tonight and tomorrow. Ooh. It's going to rock your... I mean, it, the stuff we're going to be releasing in the next couple of weeks uh, from the, the work we've been doing yeah. is uh, with Joe and, and the Urban 3 guys. Is, so this was the nugget. For anybody who made it an hour and change into this podcast, you get to be teased. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let, and let me we're give releasing. You, let me give you let me give you the way I've been presenting it now because we're looking for the narrative that will stick with people. Yeah, this city uh, median house is about one hundred fifty thousand. Uh huh. Median household income is about forty one thousand. Yeah. Right? Okay. So you, you've got a city that, in many ways, sits right in the middle of the bell curve yeah, yeah. for the country. Uh -huh. Right. You're at it, it, a typical house. You'll pay uh, around. $600 a year in taxes to the city. Hmm. You'll pay about $2,500 a year in total local tax. But most of that goes to the school district and the, the regional government. But about six, $700 a year goes to the city. Okay. In order for the city to maintain everything that has been built, and we used a 50-year amateurization, so we assume that those roads and streets would last 50 years. Yeah, which is being very kind. In order for the city to maintain everything that they built... Uh, your taxes would need to go from around six hundred to seven hundred to around seventeen thousand per year. Wow! Yeah, which would that's is not completely impossible. It's completely impossible. Yeah, and and so at the end of the day, like you know, the question is, well, would they go from six hundred to maybe three thousand, 
or 5,000, that still is unbelievable, right? You know, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, because this directly relates to what you're talking about. Uh, in, so my wife's parents live in Spokane, Washington. Yeah. And they, I was having a conversation with them about some things where they had quit doing snow plowing on uh, non-arterial streets. Okay. And they, they, they were from Alaska, so they're used to, you know, plowing sure. being... You know, constant and everywhere, and so to to them, this is just like completely irresponsible, unethical, unacceptable. It's like third world conditions. It's right? third world condition. They they, yeah. they they they're like deeply, deeply, deeply offended, right, by what they see as the total negligence of the city to not plow the streets like promptly, right, and people are dying. You know, the the roads are dangerous. There's a well, the street they live on. Actually, I really like the area they live in. It's sort of your is classic. This is where I dropped you off. Uh, n- no, they've moved since then. So oh, okay. I'm tr- referring to their new area. Although this, the, the snow plowing thing applies to both, but, uh, they're in a, it, Spokane's an interesting city. It's got good bones. It's kind yeah, of like, yeah, a, no, no, down, yeah, it's uh, nice, nice parts of Spokane. So, um, y- you know, their street is probably like 30 feet of paving or might be, might be 38 feet of paving. It's really wide, curb to curb asphalt. Sure. And I, and, and Dan and I, uh, my father-in-law were talking about like, you know, what would the city do when they'd had no, if they reach a point where they have no money to maintain the roads, the roads are already in bad shape. You know, are they going to just cut off certain parts of town or are they going to do things like, and I told him this, I said, for instance, you've got almost 40 feet clear across paving. Well, and that's like pretty, that's pretty much the way the roads are here. Right. You know, the city could cut their maintenance budget in half if they would just only pave the middle 20 feet and just let the outer 10 feet on each side go to gravel or right. just like just d- decay. Right. Like it's parking. Which is so obvious. It's so obvious, yeah. right? You know, it is so obvious. Now, actually, I thought it was kind of clever because I came up with it on the spot, right? right but it's right. very, very obvious, right? right? So anyway, I, I, uh, I told him that and he looked at me like slack jawed. He says, right. they would never do that. Yeah. They would, that would never, that could never right. happen. Right. Never. And I told him, you and, know. And transport him back 40 years to Detroit, and he'd say the same thing. Yeah. Living in a neighborhood in Detroit. And so, guess what? It happened. We don't know what will happen, but it certainly could happen. Well, And that's the kind of thing that, and that actually might not be that bad of a way to go. You know, no. if you think about it, you could actually keep all your, if, if your choices were, you could keep all your roads paved, but as if you just cut the cross section in half, that's not that bad. That's a fairly graceful failure state, you know? Like, right. you can still get around. You, right. had, you didn't cut off any part of your town, you know? Right. So, but you, you look, and this city that we've been working in, to me, is like a well-run place. Uh-huh. It's a very average place. There's nothing, like, remark. There's, there's, there's nothing where you look at this place and go, wow, they totally screwed this, this, yeah, this nothing up. nefarious. No. Um, no incompetence. No incompetence, right? Just, this is just an American development pattern. Yeah. And... When you look at it, it's hard not to conclude that 70 to 80% of what they have today it will, cannot, cannot be maintained and therefore will not be maintained. Yeah. And the implications of that, I think, who knows? Does that mean people will abandon these places? Does that mean they'll just yeah, and where will deal they with go? the lower level of service? Where will they go? What will they do? Does this mean a shift to different parts of the city? You know, it... And Realistically, when, it probably means lots and lots and lots of things yeah. in various proportions. You well, know, and and really, all of the above. This is a this is not one city. This is a this is yeah, every right. city in it's the country. This is a national problem. Yeah. And so, to me, like the question I wish we were struggling with here is: 
if you look at a city and understand that every city in this country, minus a couple small anomalies like a New York or a San Francisco, right, is going to undergo a, a geographic contraction of, of at least 50%. What, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Like, what, what do, do we do? And I feel like we're blissfully unaware of that as everybody else is, even though the people sitting in this hotel right now could actually answer that question if they put their minds to it. Yeah. The, 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 the one set of people in this country that could actually start to answer that question well, this is, is this, this is the group here. of people who are prepared. They have the right mental framework to understand that as a real possibility and, right. and why. To, to, to quickly, quickly adapt to right. that reality right. and tackle it head on. Right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I don't know. We're, we're going to have to get there. But I think this is where Strong Towns really comes in. I've, I mean, we've had this conversation before, but I think uh, many of us in the core of Strong Towns see Strong Towns as in many ways a complement to, but in some ways a successor to uh, the CNU. Because yeah. we're not trying to accomplish the same thing exactly, but when you sort of reach the point where you've run out of patience with waiting for this group of people to kind of catch up and move on to the next problem... Uh, well, just sign up for Strong Towns. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been comfortable with that up until the last maybe year. Yeah. When I've started to say, okay, yeah, I think that's maybe that's maybe where things are at. Yeah. I, I love it here. Gosh, I'm so happy to be here. But it doesn't, I don't think that that's a contentious thing. No, I, think, I don't either. Uh, I think if anything, what I hope will, will come out of this is hopefully the work we're doing at Strong Towns to go ahead and try and tackle those problems and put them on the radar will eventually work its way back into CNU and CNU will catch up. And I think this is pretty common for big organizations. They reach a certain size and get a little slow. It's hard to turn the ship. And sometimes they need some, you know, smaller uh, troublemakers throwing rocks from the outside. Is that going to happen to us someday? Uh, you know, probably so. <laughs> I don't know. We're all starting to get old and have kids. Uh, and uh, We are you know, all getting old and having kids. All that stuff. All right. Um, it, it's about dinner time. Let's go get a bite to eat. Uh, tomorrow, for those of you who are listening, and I, it's, amazingly, there are people who have listened to every podcast today, yeah. or at least I've gotten feedback from wow. people. Yeah. Um, tomorrow uh, morning, I'll be posting the lineup. We've got Steve Mozan, uh, Leif Sobel, Hazel Boris, John Zimmerman, uh, President and CEO of the CNU, Lynn Richards, uh, Jarrett Walker, and James Lamas uh, talking about transit, and then uh, Sinclair Black and Hayden Walker talking about development in Austin. So we got a busy, busy schedule tomorrow. And uh, tonight is the next-gen pub crawl. Are you, you with me? Yeah. All right. got to recruit uh, three debaters and um, a couple people for the late show Friday night to do a, a bit. So. All right. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Chuck. America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. 
The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.